The worst day to start is tomorrow because tomorrow is always a day away. The best day to start is yesterday. But if you didn't start yesterday, let's get going today. And to your point, it doesn't have to be real estate. It could be that aspiring entrepreneur. It could be that person that wants to set a goal or as a dear friend of mine says, a commitment. Now is the day. Now is the time. We talk a lot about early rising and that alarm goes off. Like you don't push snooze in life. And if you push snooze when you wake up in the morning, you're going to push snooze in life. And so get going, set a plan, write it down, find people around you that'll hold you accountable, but you can never quit. You can never stop. You've got to go. One path is a long, winding, unpaved, backbreaking, bumpy, miserable road to a place called success. The other road is straight, paved, smooth, comfortable, and that road ends up in a place called failure. Welcome to the show. I am Kyle Matthews on the Matthews Mentality Podcast, where we dive into the mindset of the world's most driven founders, CEOs, business moguls, athletes, and entrepreneurs. Each episode will turn our guest wisdom into practical advice that will help you build a deeper understanding of what led them to success and the mentality behind what got them there. Let's get started. Welcome to episode three of the Matthews Mentality Podcast. I am your host, Kyle Matthews, and sitting here with my good friend, Troy Marcus. Troy, welcome to the show. Kyle, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Your favorite part, I know you love when I, I brag about you, so I'm going to do that. I'm going to read your bio, okay? So, so bear with me. You probably wrote this. So Troy is the founder of Evergen Equity and has operated in varying capacities in the real estate industry over the last 17 years, overseeing in excess of $800 million of acquisitions, developments, and dispositions. Most recently, Troy served as president of MIMCO, the owner of over 300 properties in the southwestern United States. Prior to this, Troy worked with private equity real estate firm Thackeray Partners in Dallas, investing across all product types and geographies. Troy joined Thackeray after graduating at the top of his class from the University of Texas. Is this true? Top of your class? It is. It was a soft year of students, I suppose. So, so you're, you're a nerd. I don't have many hobbies. <laughs> we'll dive into that. No, that's, that's awesome, man. Well done. Additionally, Troy serves on the advisory board of Pennybacker Capital, an industry-leading private equity real estate investment firm with offices in Austin, Denver, Charlotte, and New York. Troy is involved in the real estate community as the chairman of the YPO International Real Estate Network and serves as a member of the advisory council of the Real Estate Finance Investment Center at the University of Texas. Troy, that is impressive. Now, hold on. I got to ask you. So University of Texas, top of your class. What year did you graduate? 2010. Okay. So are you sitting at the Rose Bowl January 6th of 2006? Yeah, so you know the day. You know where I'm going with this. Are you are you at the game? I wasn't just at the game. I thought the the year prior we were at the Rose Bowl when UT played Michigan and we got very lucky and had 50-yard line seats. That year we got snubbed and we had seats in a corner of an end zone, a few rows up. Just so happened to be the corner where Vince Young ran in that touchdown to get the 42-38 win. No way. Not that I remember the game. No, this, it, it wasn't a it wasn't an important moment in your life. Now I also was at the game. I just graduated two years before, so but I knew most of the team. I had a lot of close friends on the team, and my my little brother Clay was playing. And at the time, he was mostly special teams. But I also was in the corner of the end zone, a couple rows up, 
in the end zone he ran into, but the other side. Uh, and I actually don't remember that game at all. And I don't think it actually it didn't happen. It, it didn't happen. News. It is fake news. But that was as a sports fan, that was the most painful thing I've ever suffered through. It was a pretty special one to two battle. And I think we can both agree that if we played 10 times, Texas would have only won nine of them. That's funny. <laughs> That's funny. I honestly thought you were going to say, I was like, hell, he's not going to say this. Like USC would win most. I, it's my opinion, and I, I'm going to state this as a fact because it's generally accepted as fact that if they played 10 times, USC would win nine, Texas would win one. It was just the one they won. Everything had to break wrong for USC in that game. I could go through it if you want. I think we'll I think we'll spare the All audience. Right. We'll, this, we'll, we'll grab a beer later. We could we could go through that, but but can we agree that both of us played very serious football in the third grade, but only one of us played serious football in college? And this is so true. Well, you're smart. Well, our third well, grade exposure, but but let me it, it, it gets it gets back to your your bio top of class. You didn't play football not because. You were likely better than Vince Young. It's just you had other options. Exactly. See, I had no other options, so this is what I had to do. That makes sense. That makes sense. All right, so let, let me take it a little little step back. I mean, you've accomplished so much. You're 35, right? You just you just had your first kid. Congratulations, Mason. Thank you. I Ma- highlight a lot. Mason, if you're listening to this in 25 years, what's up? <laughs> Good to see you. But here, here's my question. All right, so you're, you graduate top of your class in Texas, how, how'd you, how'd you do that? Well, I'm excited to spend time with you. And, and before we jump in, Kyle, I mean, it when I say thanks for having me, I've always admired and been in awe with what you're doing, but really get fired up by the way you and your team handle themselves. And I think that there's a lot of cultural similarities between our two companies. The question is, how do you go to a big school like UT and graduate top of your class? Um, to me, it comes down to discipline. And at the end of the day, Everybody had a lot of fun, present company included, but I always remained disciplined. Step one was every Sunday morning, 6 a.m., I woke up. Didn't matter what time we went to bed the night before, oftentimes late nights after big Saturday wins. Now, did you wake up at 6 a.m. after the Rose Bowl? I did not wake up at 6 a.m. after the Rose Bowl. Okay. But that's just because I don't think I went to sleep that night because we were so happy. You you did not Uh, go to sleep. Keep in mind, four years later, we had a Rose Bowl where we lost to Alabama, and I think I went straight to bed after that game. Yeah. Well, that um, game was over in the first quarter, but... Well, you know, that we can delve into that one over drinks, too. But, but no, to me, it was about discipline. To me, it was about you'd get up on Sunday, and while many's, many were out there watching pro football or many were out there nursing a hangover, it was this was the day that I turned my phone off and I spent 12 hours just cranking through work. And it was probably because I wasn't doing enough during the week, but what I knew is that worked for me. The truth is my grades were certainly not a perfect reflection of my effort in college. I think I was very fortunate. I studied real estate finance. There was a lot of group projects. I've always loved people, always had a lot of friends and generally a a pretty strong EQ. And I knew I didn't have the IQ to be top of my class. And so much of what would happen is I'd show up in the classroom. I knew a lot of folks. I also knew how to assemble the right team. And so I would go in there and if there was a group project, I would be sort of the team leader that would divvy up work one fourth, one fourth, one fourth, one fourth. And then team members would know to send it to me and I'd aggregate it and maybe I'd be the one that made the presentation. And, and you so, take all the credit naturally. 
I think we all got the same grade. And, <laughs> but at the end of the day, everybody was able to add value in the area that they were strongest. And it, it proved to work out all right. Let me ask you. So you, you achieved this success in college. Let me take it back a little further, if you don't mind. And, and I would say, like, t- tell us your story. Is this, has this discipline, personality, this, this focus and discipline, has this been you since you were as young as you can remember? Like, if I was sitting here talking to your parents and I said, hey, describe Troy to me as a seven-year-old kid, like, what, what were you like? So I think there's this conversation around nature versus nurture. Yes. And you and I have spent time talking about this as fathers, but, but also as leaders of team members and just as members of team. As it relates to nurture, you know, I've always had this mindset of to he who much is given, much is expected. And I was given a lot because I was given the ability, I was born in the United States. I had access to great public school education, access to healthcare. I had two loving parents. And so I knew that I had an advantage that many in the world don't, billions in the world didn't. I also grew up in a household where I had a father who had started a houseware business. He, you know, early years of my life, he was international a couple hundred days a year. I mean, he was grinding, but when he was home, he was present. And I had a mother who was a homemaker who was equally impressive. She was very involved as a mother in our lives. She was also very involved in the community, the PTA president, the junior league president. And she, we spent a lot of time on weekends doing community service projects with the junior league. And it really ingrained in me how fortunate we were. And because of that, I knew there was no excuses. So what that did to me was really light a fire in me to make the most of the hand I was dealt. So in addition to the, to much is given, much is expected environment, that or, or awareness you had, but also the environment you grew up in. It also sounds like you grew up in in a household and, and, and generally environment where you stayed busy. Like, and everyone in your family was active and busy and moving at all times. Is that a fair fair assessment? It is fair that that is the environment I grew up in, and it is fair to say that I thrive on it. I love it. I'm addicted to progress, and I'm a firm believer that an object in motion stays in motion and. I'm of the belief you can never quit. You can never slow down. You can never stop. Yeah. It, it sometimes, you know, every now and then someone will ask me, oh, you know, Troy, and expect even obviously agents here who will probably cold call you at some point. They're like, oh, you know, hey, you, you know, Troy, what's he like? And I, you know, there's a lot of adjectives I use, mostly positive. But I, I, the one thing I say is like, dude, the dude never stops, like relentless. Like he, I know you don't watch TV I and mean, we could, we could talk about that later, but I just, I, I never have a visual visual of you in my head sitting there just kind of chilling. Like you're always doing something. And so we'll talk a lot about nature and nurture. And it sounds like perhaps you always had that as your nature. That's just how you were wired, right? You come out of the room busy, active, moving forward, objects in motion, stay in motion, but also perhaps in 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 watching, because that's what we do as kids, watching your father, watching your mother. They just were always busy. They're always doing something. And, and this is my word, you, you know, is, is they're always staying productive. Absolutely. And I think productivity is key. I think a lot of people talk about, oh, when you hit a certain milestone, do you retire? Do you kick back? Do you relax? And I've just seen too many circumstances where someone that decides to hang it up 
ends up finding themselves bored and either making bad decisions or close to the end of life. And I love life too much to stop. Yeah. And I love this life too much to stop. And I think I'm just inspired to help others find a life that they're passionate about that they don't want to stop. So the, how, what, what are your th- thoughts? We, so many people speak a, about the word, uh, you know, competitive and, and, oh, I'm so competitive or competition and all that in, in being a very driven and disciplined person, nature and nurture. But where does competition fit into that? Because I'm thinking, I, I, again, I'm, 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 I'm still thinking about Troy Marcus as in, in your earlier life, you're a kid, like, you know, I'll ask you the question, did you play sports? But really, how did you approach sports? Did you approach a sports perhaps like you did your schooling, which I assume some some level of competitive drive drove you to say, hey, I want to be the number one student at University of Texas. Was that also a thing, you know, playing football, basketball, baseball, whatever sports you did? Like, tell, tell me about that part of your life. Yeah, I think I think competition is is an integral part of progress. I've generally been of the belief, and, and while I, I love our healthy banter about UT and USC in 2006, a game in which both of us were attending, neither of us were playing, I compete every single day, but if I'm being candid, I have one adversary, one person I'm competing against, and that's me. Yeah. That, that was me yesterday versus today. I don't sit there. I, I, I think you know a lot of people say you know comparison is the thief of joy or things of that sort. I don't sit there and count Kyle's eggs. I don't sit there and compare or, or compete against other companies. I sit there and say, are we doing our best? Are we pushing every day? And you and I have spent a bit of time in the past talking about what is that? What does success look like? And I was about to ask, how do you evaluate that? When you say, are we doing our best every day? How do you evaluate that? How do you make that measurable? Absolutely. So to me, I'm maniacally focused on success but I'm not focused on some goal at the end of the road, or some might say output. I am hyper-focused on input. What are we doing day in and day out? Output shows up. You don't know when, Over you time. don't know how. You've gotta give it time, but we have time, as long as we make the right decisions. I'm about input. What am I doing every single day? I don't wake up in the morning and say I wanna lose five pounds. I wake up in the morning knowing that I'm gonna get out of bed and work out. I wake up in the morning, no, I'm going to make healthy decisions. I don't wake up in the morning and jump on a scale. Control the controllables, right? 100%. I love so, that. So, all right, you're coming out of college. You've done well. Let, you're entering the workplace. Let's, let's walk the audience through, what do you do when you come out of school? Where do you go to work? What does your day look like? What does your life look like? Walk us through that. Absolutely. I may take one quick step back yeah, to sort no. of highlight how I got into real estate. Please do. First off, my brain's not that big. One nice thing about real estate is it's tangible. So I was always able to touch it, feel it. I grew up, I had a, my grandfather moved to the U.S. in 1921, opened up a little butcher shop. One day opened, ended up buying the shopping center that the butcher shop was in. So I grew up on the way to Boy Scouts, on the way back from football practice. And where'd you oh, grow up? I grew up in El Paso, Texas. Shout so out far El Paso. West Texas. Oh yeah, 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 I love it. But I grew up, you know, on the way to school, coming back from practice, poking our head in vacancies, looking at a construction site. So I was exposed to real estate very early on. Studied real estate finance in school. I actually, out of my freshman year dorm room, me and three friends bought our first piece of commercial real estate. You well, did? We did. What we was did. it? 
So it was a vacant single tenant building. We bought it for $238,000. Each of us needed to come up with $18,000 of equity, of which I got a so credit So this was facility. 2007? This was 2006. You got one of those so nin- ninja loans, exactly. right? No Thankfully, income, was, no job. Exactly. It was, it was easy money, not dissimilar for much of the last I wonder why years. the economy short, <laughs> collapsed shortly thereafter. No right? kidding. Yeah. We, we, we did not... You know, at the end of the day, we did not deserve it, but we worked hard and we did it. And sure enough, that's a partnership that today is still around. I'm very proud of it. We turned, you know, the drill. We backfilled the space. We sold the deal. We flipped it. We 1031 into the next deal. And that partnership's bought upward of three dozen deals over it. That's seven. wild. And we're all still great friends and, and partners. And uh, yeah, it's that's been a fun cool. run. So, so, you, so real estate spoke to you. At a young age, you were exposed to it, and that helps, right? Certainly. Again, nature and nurture. So you're 19 years old, and you buy your first deal. And it well. was, and it wasn't always fun. We learned a lot of lessons owning our first couple of assets during the Great Financial Crisis. You you learned very quickly that anybody can buy real estate. It's what you do once you own it that matters. It's how you operate it. Again, that maniacal focus really comes into play. We say a lot at Evergen. We talk about how you capitalize conservatively, but you operate aggressively. We talk about how we protect first, grow, grow next. I mean, we're really focused on what we have. But yeah, so got learned a lot of lessons very early on, which, which again, you got to get started. You got to get started yesterday, not today. But you start learning those lessons early. And I think that they've, I'm now getting to bear the fruits of, of those early investments. Real quick. You started, I mean, shoot, at 19, like let's say even 22. What, what would you say to someone listening who's 42 who hasn't started? In whatever whatever industry, we could use real estate, who's thinking about buying their first property. Is it best day to start is today? Just, just go for it. Just do it. The worst day to start is tomorrow because tomorrow is always a day away. The best day to start is yesterday. But if you didn't start yesterday, let's get going today. And, and to your point, it doesn't have to be real estate. It could be that aspiring entrepreneur. It could be that person that wants to set a goal, or as a dear friend of mine says, a commitment. It is, it is, now is the day. Now is the time. We talk a lot about early rising and that alarm goes off. Like you don't push snooze in life. And if you push snooze when you wake up in the morning, you're going to push snooze in life. And so get going, set a plan, write it down, find people around you that'll hold you accountable but you can never quit. You can never stop. You've got to go. We talk about, we talk about, I'll, I'll tell a lot of the, the newer, younger professionals, oftentimes will say, Hey, what's the most important thing I could be doing? And, and, or what is the, what's the most important decision I can make? I said, well, the most important professional decision you make every day is when you get out of bed. Right. And you, you talk about hitting the snooze button. I, I don't know if there's ever been someone who hit the snooze button once or twice and later that day was like, you know, I'm really glad I hit that snooze button. No, typically it carries tremendous guilt. And so, yeah, I, I definitely, I definitely understand what you're saying in terms of it's that, it's that first thing you do every day. It's just, you got to get out of bed. You were spot on. Yeah. You were spot on. All right. So, so you're coming, you're, you're doing real estate deals starting in college, which, you know, I didn't know that, but that's, I mean, you're, you're, you're ahead of the game. Your advice to anyone saying, Hey, I'm not, I didn't do that, but I want to either start my business or I want to buy a property or whatever it is in life, whatever that next step is. Let's just say it doesn't even have to be professionally. Personally, it's like the best day was yesterday. The next best day is today. The worst day is tomorrow. 
walk us through you're you're 19 you're buying a deal and and again this 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 relates to perhaps someone listening fear it's fear i i i know you very well you're you know it's like there had to be moments where you were like what am i doing like i'm afraid i'm afraid this is going to fail i'm afraid i'm going to fail i'm afraid this deal might not work and and someone listening might be saying hey that's great I don't disagree that today is the best day to get going, but but I'm afraid it's not going to work out. It's not going to go the way I want it. Like, how did you overcome your initial fears of just starting to do deals? And, and what advice would you have for someone who's really, you know, in many ways paralyzed by that fear? So there's two items you just hit on. One is fear. One is being paralyzed by fear. And the, the integral piece of, of that recipe that you didn't allude to was mentality. So everyone is fearful, and I validate fear. Allowing it to par- paralyze you is a different story, and it really comes back to how are you looking at things? When you get out of bed, hopefully before you hit snooze, you know, what is your mentality? You can look at every obstacle as an opportunity, or you can choose to use it as an excuse. And so what I would encourage anyone who's thinking about doing anything different than what they did yesterday is to really own up that fear, validate the fear, but let's figure out how to conquer it or let's figure out how to use it as an advantage. I love your story and you had, you had to bust it those first 17 months before you had your first deal come through. But guess what? I'm certain there were times you were fearful. You were fearful of failure. You were fearful of putting food on the table. But what you did was you used that to inspire you. You used that fear to push harder, to try better, to continue to dial in your best practices. And so what I would encourage anybody that's setting out on doing anything is understand that fear, but understand that that there's a fork in the road and you can use that fear as an excuse to fall back on what you've been doing, which if you're thinking about doing something different, it's because you're not fulfilled in what you're doing. Or you can sit there and say, I can go make calculated decisions. Let's not just go buy a building if we're not set to be, or built to buy a building. Where I was very fortunate was I had three partners that I knew that if we were in the trenches, we can get through anything together. That didn't mean any one of us could, but collectively we needed four chiefs in the TP at that time. And at the end of the day, we were hyper-focused on basis. We knew what we were buying. We knew, again, it was 2006, so easy money was not dissimilar from 2019. So, But we understood what it would be like if that building stayed vacant. We understood that we were going to need to make money elsewhere to prop up that deal. But we understood we were able to make a calculated bet on the upside, and there were asymmetric returns in making that investment. And we knew that downside was pretty protected, but upside could be pretty great. And I think at the end of the day, it's you've got to surround yourself with people that support you, that care about you. Anytime that someone is looking about taking a leap, those around them are excited by that. I mean, Elon Musk once said, we don't need to have retirement parties for people. We need to throw entrepreneurship parties. We need yeah, to, and, and I don't take credit for that. That was his, but I thought that was beautiful. And 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 he's a polarizing individual, and I'm not, I'm not, saying that he's my idol, but I think that there's, there's real value on that. And I think that societally, especially in America, which is, which is really this incredible 
ecosystem of people that that whether you're a wildcatter in oil and gas in Texas or you're a tech entrepreneur in Northern California, people want to take things to the next level. People want progress. And, and I think people are celebrated for taking risks, for trying to solve problems that aren't being solved. And so I would really say lean on those around you. People are there to listen to you, to support you, to share their best practices, or more importantly, their pitfalls, so that you can make calculated decisions on what the best next steps are to achieve your goals. Talk to us about, you're coming out of school, bef- after school, before MIMCO, talk to us about what you're doing. And then also, you know, we we want to dive into, you said, mentality and mindset and really psycho- the psych- psychology behind what drives highly successful people. And, and one of the things I'm really fascinated by is how does that change over time, right? So let's start, you're out of school before you get to MIMCO, because we'll, we'll touch on that part of your life in a second. What are you doing and, and where's your head at? So I had a great opportunity to move to Dallas to work for Thackeray Partners, which is a first rate private equity real estate firm serving some of the larger endowments and pensions across the country investing in across all product types from coast to coast. But what was really exceptional there was I was able to be surrounded by a team of top performers. I was the dummy that that not only was the youngest and the newest, but I, I came from a public university where most people had double Ivy League degrees. But what I was able to learn there were a lot of things beyond an Argus model. And and the first thing I learned was team and collaboration. And at the end of the day, no one at Thackeray was above doing anything. So at Thackeray, there was a dishwasher and there were 25 of us. And each week we rotated who had to unload the dishwasher the next morning. And to me, what that said was not that everyone was equal. It just said that everyone here is willing to do anything. Whatever it takes. To, to get things moving forward. Now, the truth was it gave me an opportunity to get to the office before anyone else and unload that dishwasher, whether or not it was my week. But that was a choice I made. That was never something that was put on me. Um, But it was something, to me, it was a way to serve the greater good. And in my mind, it was little lessons like that that allowed me to build discipline that at the end of the day, in my opinion, allowed me to succeed. Remind me later to ask, talk to you, but I'll ask you not only what you did, but what anyone can do to stand out, right? Little things, because this is a big thing for me, but remind me to ask you that question. What were you working on day to day? Just very practical in the sense like they said, all right, Troy, we're evaluating a portfolio of assets. What, what, what were you doing? Absolutely. So as a financial analyst, and, and again, this is where I learned a lot of the protect first, grow later. We were constantly deploying new funds, and so we were constantly underwriting all sorts of assets across many different markets. And so it was a lot of time on Excel. It was really understanding the numbers. We would spend some time on property, understanding not just the buildings, but how do tenants use the building? How do prospective tenants want to use the building? Really understanding the functionality of each of these spaces. And then at the end of the day, we spent a lot of time underwriting and re-underwriting and understanding deviations from our plan on our existing portfolio. And to me, that's an area where many in the real estate business 
don't prioritize. And I think that at a time like today, which which late April 2023, there's a lot of turmoil and you're hearing about some of the biggest, most blue chip firms throwing the keys back. There are some there are some out of control items, but there are a lot of controllables. But people took their eye off the ball. They quit focusing on the protect first. They were only focusing on the grow second. And to me, if you want to be a success, the biggest thing, the biggest zero you can get is on a decision you made. Passing on a new opportunity, you may miss out on some upside, but it is, you cannot have a miss. At Evergen, we say this daily, no home runs, no strikeouts. We cannot have a strikeout. We are in the business of downside protection. We have the opportunity to serve some of the country's greatest families, and they entrust us with their allocation, but we're in the don't go broke bucket. We are in the protect at all cost bucket. And I think that that's something that during this market turmoil, people will will start to appreciate again. But it was hard over the last few years when every money was cheap down. and every deal looked good. And but well, I think this is we're we're in for a new chapter. You, of the story. You've heard that you make more money on the deals you don't do than the deals you do. But the last couple of years that 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 was tough. You didn't see it often, but now. The realities of the market and the fundamentals appear to be showing up again. So, so I agree. What is your mindset when you're at Thackeray and just, hey, I'm here to learn and then I'm going to take this? Wait, what, what's going through your head in terms of how you're approaching your career? This is your you really, you know, I, you, you purchase real estate in college. So, you, you, as a professional, you already started, but this is really the first phase of your professional life. Like, what are you thinking every day to day? Absolutely. So in college, one thing I wasn't shy about was reaching out to alumni of different organizations that I was a part of. And, and one of those alumni once said something that was very profound to me, and I think about it regularly. He said, your 20s and 30s are about learning, 40s and 50s are about earning, and once you turn 60, you find ways to give it all away. And that's, that's not that's, just money. That's good. I'm going to use that one. Yeah. And, and, and that's really not just about money. It's about giving your time. It's about sharing you know, any learnings you've had along your way. But so to me, I was hyper-focused on learning. And Thackeray gave me an incredible foundation because they taught us so much. They were maniacally focused on training and had an incredible training platform. They did an exceptional job of looping us in into conversations and, and discussions that maybe we couldn't add value in, but they, they were focused on investing in us as individuals. And I know that this is an area that you and the Matthews team spent a lot of time on. But at the end of the day, I used that period in life to do everything I could to add value. But at the same time, I was a sponge. I learned everything. And I learned everything I could. I still have a lot to learn. But it was really an exceptional place to learn. And for better or worse, when you're a sponge, the only way to increase the amount of learning you can do is by the quantity of time you're willing to spend in learning environment. There you go. Yeah, I was going to ask, what did, what did your life look like at the time? Like, what, did, what is the typical day in the life of Troy Marcus at Absolutely. that period of time? So, so there's this concept of work-life balance. There is. I, I, uh, tell me about this. Yeah, yeah uh, exactly. I focus more on life fulfillment and that means things are a little more lopsided than sleep eight hours, work eight hours, play eight hours. 
I knew at that phase in my life, it was about working. It was about learning. It was about investing in myself and investing anything I could to make the Thackeray team better. And so I stuck to a pretty tight schedule, up at five, working out, did reading, was in the office at or before seven. On a normal day, we stayed till seven or eight, but there were always a few nights a week where that could be much later. There were busy seasons. There were, you know, heavy acquisition or disposition times. There were big quarterly reports due. But to me, at the time, it was tough. I certainly had friends that were working nine to fives. They were certainly doing... Were they messaging you? Like, we, we talk about this here. They're going to be like, what are you doing, man? Why are you working so hard? Of course. Of course. And and, and how did you... How did... How... What effect? How did you handle that? Well... So something we talk a lot about at Evergen, but this has been something I've focused on throughout my life, is return on time. I was a salaried employee. Whether I chose to stay until 7 p.m. or 9 p.m., I was going to get paid no differently in cash. But my return on time was exceptional because guess what? In those hours from 7 to 9, when there were others in the office, they were working on something important. And I was getting to learn from them mm. working on something important. And so at the end of the day, you looked at my tax returns and I didn't make a penny more, but I made a lot of money and I've saved a lot of money over a long period of time because I learned lessons that helped me avoid pitfalls and I learned best practices that whatever level of success I've been able to achieve up until this point, I would not have hit had I not been in the trenches, working hard, investing in my learning. We call that mental mental income because it's not income that's going to show up on your tax return. Like you said, you, your salary was your salary, but 100%. you were you were earning. It just was it wasn't dollars. You were earning knowledge. You were earning experience. You were earning relationships. So that mental income, it sounds like, was so important to you. What? Yeah, because we we that that's one of the challenges we have is is it. it at Evergen, at Thackeray, Matthews, and, and a lot of companies, especially highly driven people, they're, they're working, you know, candidly 12, 13, 14 hours a day. And I would say even when you and I were coming out of school, let's call it 20 years ago to age ourselves, unfortunately, it, it was starting, you started to hear about this work-life balance and you're like, oh, what is, you know, what is that? And okay, but now the messaging is is very strong. It is, it is it's almost like they're being taught it in many ways. And, and so... Sometimes we'll see a young man or woman come out of school and start in a career where you're in at seven in the morning, you're out at nine. And, and even let's say like your environment, they, they were learning the whole time, right? The mental income standpoint is just they're getting messaged from their friends, just like you did, just like I did. And nowadays with social media, they see it. They see curated images of, of their friends' lives. They're like, what am I doing? You know, talk to me about the mental fortitude, the discipline that either you had to have or, or if you were talking to a younger person who's, you know, a year or two into this really high demanding career that may have high rewards one day, but they're, they're likely not seeing it today. Again, you're salaried, you, you, you're making probably a little more than you're spending, you know, what, what, do you, what, what message would you have as it relates to the, the, the mental fortitude and discipline you need to, to, not, to not listen to that, to not listen to the noise? So taking a quick step back, I'm thankful to be here, and and the content we're discussing discussing is the path I've chosen. I'm not at all one to evangelize my path. I'm not 
I wouldn't trade my life for anyone in the world, but I'm not wishing it on anyone else. But I've always been of the belief that as an individual, you have to come up with priorities. There is not enough time in the day to do everything. But if you can set what is most important to you, in my case, it's my family, it's creating an environment at Evergen where team members are inspired and they can achieve their goals, and it's serving the Evergen families that have entrusted in us. If you can create whatever your priorities are, then you build a plan. And as we alluded to earlier, you come up with the plan, you put it in writing, you surround yourself with people that will hold you accountable. You go back and look at that plan. You make sure you're sticking to the plan and you execute on that plan. I think that having those priorities set allow you to choose where you want to spend time. So to me, a priority at that time was to learn as much as I could and to best deliver on what I could to the Thackeray team and investors. And so it was very easy when you had that friend that was working a nine to five that wanted to go get cocktails at 501 on a Tuesday for me to say, that's not in my plan because that's not my priority. I have, I, I cast zero judgment no, on no, what their No Taco were. Tuesdays for you. No, no Taco Tuesdays. Maybe tacos but, at the office, but. Exactly. exactly. What, what about Thirsty Thursdays, right? Yeah. They were, college was great for Thirsty Thursdays <laughs> and my priorities were different back then. But so I think that, it all comes down to prioritization. And it doesn't matter if you are a college student or a young professional or an entrepreneur or a highly successful top of the food chain leader. At the end of the day, you've got to figure out what you're passionate about, what best serves you and your mission, and be mission driven and block out the noise. So your, your priorities led to your plan. Is that what ultimately took you from Thackeray to Mimco? Talk to me about the, your plan at that time and, and then going from you know, that place to, to Absolutely. where I first met you. Of Mimco, course, yeah. of course. And, and, and quick side note, when you and I first met, Matthews was something that I was remarkably impressed in. What Matthews is today versus what it was when we first met is a night and day difference. And what you and your team have built is exceptional and something that I hope you and you, your wife, your four kids, and everybody in the Matthews family can take a step back. I appreciate that. Well, you know, whenever I go to hit that snooze button and I go, well, I know Troy ain't hitting that snooze button. I was like, I get my ass out of bed. There we know? go. There that's, we go. That's why I love, I always, I always tell people like, I want to, I want to be the least motivated person in the room. I love it. I want to be the least accomplished. I want to be the least successful because when I'm around those types of people, I just, I got to do more. And that, you said something that's very powerful is like, is fulfillment. And you said, hey, I'm not here to evangelize. What works for me, the paraphrasing, may not work for, for someone else. And the eight hours of work, eight hours of sleep, eight hours of play, if that's what brings someone fulfillment, then that's what they should do. Absolutely. If I'm hearing you correctly, that just wasn't, that didn't bring you fulfillment. Exactly. So the fulfillment leads to setting priorities. Setting priorities leads to creating the plan. Creating the plan first brought you to Thackeray. How do you end up as the president of MIMCO? When I took the job at Thackeray, it was my dream job. Again, we were getting to serve incredible investors and work on really special projects. 
at the end of the day, I, I was called to this opportunity to serve a business that in a small way was started by my grandfather and then was being run by my uncle. And it was a really special time in this business in that Mimco had built a, a great team of 11 folks that were really hardworking and mission driven and really focused on serving retailers in El Paso, Texas. And there was this opportunity to really scale this business. And a lot of the hard work had been had been done to build out the team and systems good foundation. for what it was. And it was really special to get to be a part of the journey that really built a, a team five times the size, multiple offices, team systems, processes for the next level, right? And so something special had been done when they took it from A to B and getting to be on that journey from B to C was was one of the greater journeys of my life and an area that I was able to serve not just my family, but our investors. And most importantly, the team that that subsequently grew and was it was strengthened along the way. And it was also a great opportunity. At Thackeray, we were investors. We were when I went to Mimco, Mimco's vertically integrated firm, the leasing agents and the property managers and the accounting team are all in-house. Construction management is in-house. So I really was able to learn and, and try to help dial in each part of the process that a principal and a developer takes part in. How many years were you there? I was there for a decade. And it a was decade. A, I was there for a decade. And it was a really special journey. We went through the retail apocalypse in 2016, 17, oh, yeah. we went through COVID with 1900 tenants asking for uh, abatement. I think there's been three retail apocalypse since you and I have been in the business. GFC, <laughs> the online, you know, Amazon apocalypse, and then the COVID. Absolutely. And, but you, you, you definitely went through the last two at Mimco. No, of course. And I will tell you, and, and we can talk as much or as little about this as you'd like, but I am very much a believer. And at Evergen, we invest across all product types. But I think that this is a really special time in retail. Not only is it, which only, we were talking last night at dinner, which is comedy because we, you know, the retail industry has been getting beaten up for about fifteen years. But we're like the retail is like the darling. Exactly, it's great. Occupancy levels. We don't even know highs, what to do at all time highs. Yep, you know, we, we've always been the ugly duckling, and yeah. now we've had know. to battle just to get to like you know. Barely double digit IRRs on investments, and it's you know watching multifamily, then industrial, even office had a run there. But yeah, this is great. I love it. I love it. I love it. Yeah, necessity retail. I mean that you you guys had a lot of that, and I think that that really also now looking back Monday morning quarterback that was the right play. You know, is especially during COVID, right? It was, and something I'm I'm sure we'll spend some time talking about, but. By virtue of being focused in the Southwest, which was one of the regions that handled COVID in arguably a more responsible way, was hugely advantageous. And I know we'll spend some time talking about markets. When you got to Mimco versus when you left, how did the portfolio change, grow? What, what in terms of your, your investment and, and strategy, how, what, what did that look like? We went from a portfolio that was... 92% in a single city to the majority of the port or to the minority of the portfolio was in said single city, which was El Paso. More than that, we quadrupled the size of the portfolio over that decade. But really what was exceptional was 
really the topping up of the quality of the assets. And whether that was strengthening existing positions or culling the portfolio of some assets and really focusing on higher quality assets were, was all exceptional. And, and with that came diversification of tenant mix while focusing on a certain niche and a certain product type. And to me, that was great. But, but the highlights far and away were the team. And, and even though I'm not day-to-day operating in MIMCO, still very close to the team, speak with them regularly, and thankful to be in their orbit. Now, I asked you, what is a day in the life of Troy Marcus look like when you were at Thackeray? Now, what, if any, change, now that you're president of this operating company, you know, 300-plus assets, I think you got even more than that, what, 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 what did your life look like? For better or worse, I'm boring. I still woke up at 5. First thing I did was read. Then I would then I would work out. I'd be in the office early. I would stay later. Certainly, you what does that mean? Early, later? Is it still seven thirty in the morning? Office seven, yeah. seven, and and Mimco. I would I would probably leave earlier. Let's call it seven, and then would dial back in in the evening or plug back in in the evening rather, kind of after dinner, things of that sort. Clearly, more of my time during the day was spent on the team and systems and processes versus financial underwriting, mm-hmm. but which I naturally gravitate more towards strategy. But so, so it was a really special time in my career. I'll tell you probably the biggest, and no one's road is up and to the right always, probably one of the learnings that I had kind of through adversity is, of course, there are tough times in anyone's life and anyone's business, but I really was forced to learn how to handle stress and... And I was forced to learn it because I failed at it. And I went through a very deep, crummy time where I couldn't sleep. And I'd go to sleep, but I'd wake up in the middle of the night multiple times a night to check my email. Uh, You know, you're constantly worried about things you can control, but also things you can't control. Mm -hmm. And it was, I'm thankful in hindsight for that opportunity because while it was very painful and I had sleep diagnosed insomnia and, and some, some really tough times, which led to, you know, some brutal headaches and, and just general stresses on your body. It was a reminder that we're all human. It was a reminder that we all have to come back to prioritizing. And one thing I wasn't prioritizing was my health. And by, by remaining disciplined and tweaking some of my habits, I was able to dial in my life in a way that I could better handle stress. What were the habits that you had to tweak? Because you, you still were, work, you were disciplined, you were working out and all that. Was it was a diet? Like You know, diet matters, but there are little things. How much water are you drinking before you go to bed, right? Because if you drink too much water before you go to bed, you're going to wake up in the middle of the night. And when you wake up in the middle of the night, you're going to start thinking about things. Hmm. How much screen time do you have right before bed? Yeah. How much time do you spend on that like heated email right before you go to sleep? How much time? So even to this day, I wake up at five. First thing I do is spend 20 or 30 minutes looking at email. But when there are those emails that might be contentious, I make sure not to respond to them right away. I go and work out. And usually during that workout, I'm able to churn through my gut reaction and then, you know, sort of go through the systems and processes to maybe come out with a more respectful response. I have a 24-hour rule. That's what helps me. I love that. I love that. But I think that there are minor changes that any of us can make in our life to get us onto that plan that prioritizes what's most important to us. 
And that was a period of time where I was forced to really come up with a new plan and tweak some of my habits so that I could focus on the end goal. I was going to ask, how did you break out of this uh, sleep insomnia cycle? How did, how did you, how did you get it to stop? Yeah. Candidly, it was a longer, more drawn out process than I would have thought. I credit a lot of those around me, dear friends and, and family who could, you, you could see it, the bags under your eyes, the, you, you know, you're not operating at hundred percent energy, capacity. energy levels. Exactly. And, and so people would force you to say, you know what, maybe you don't need to do the sixth work dinner of the week. Maybe you don't need to go on that just because trip. Maybe you don't need to like make it to the sixth most important conference of the year. Host your 38th, you know, real estate conference. That's an addiction. I, yeah, I, I need no, to work on you, that. You, still, you're but. definitely the king, the king of hosting those things. So what, what was driving this? It's not, I know that, okay, the email, we, 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 we T- dipped our toe into fear and in, in what was driving this this sleep issue let's call it i'm just going to summarize here is what what was really causing you to wake up at night outside of drinking a lot of water before you go to bed so so i told you one of my great passions in life is people i get energy from people i love interacting with people there were some there was some real thick friction with some team members mm-hmm. with some some of those in, in my world that, and they were dealing with some problems, some of which I had some level of control of, much of which I did not, but that didn't mean I, I'm, I'm naturally a fixer and I wanted to fix things. And like I said, some of that was out of my control and I really struggled with have, you know, the lack of control in a situation where I saw real potential harm. And, and so again, it was something that I really battled with for, for quite some time. But once you learn to control what you can control, once you learn to focus on the inputs, I was able to really come to peace with the fact that as long as I was doing absolutely everything I could to strengthen, improve this situation, I needed to kind of come to peace with the fact that there would be some inputs I had no control over. And, and at the end of the day, those involved were going to get to choose the end result. And at Mimco, did you, in your opinion, did you eventually get the company to a place where you were able to perhaps eliminate, but definitely manage that friction that you had referenced and, and to kind of put your fingerprints on the company to where that got better there? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And the Mimco team right now and, and all involved are in a really great place and, and that's what allowed me to make the jump to Evergen, quite that, frankly. Yeah, that, that was going to be my next question. I was going to lead into that. But let me, I was going to ask before we get to you founding this new company, a very exciting company, it, what, what would, in your opinion, what was the, what was the best, the great, your greatest accomplishment in your time as president of MIMCO? Or what was the one fingerprint you left on that company that you're, you, you have the most fulfillment and satisfaction on? If it was a fingerprint I left, that fingerprint was left by the team on me, and it was the team. It was, these are people who I don't like, I love. These are people who are high performers and are mission-driven, and I adore that team, and I'm lucky to still be very close with each and every member of that team. And while I have no operational involvement in the business, we are still very much all aligned, and I love watching what's happening at MIMCO. And candidly, it wasn't until... 
I felt like Mimco was in an exceptional place that I that I went to my senior leadership team, my family, our three largest investors, our board, and said it's time to go from arguably being a family-run business into a family-owned business, and where I felt really comfortable stepping aside. Now, candidly, I spent eight months transitioning out. There was no, here's my two-week notice. We, we spent a lot of time making sure that there was remarkable continuity in anything, any, any initiatives, any strategy, and that business is in the best place it's been. And I'm really, I'm really excited and proud of all that Mimco is doing. That's what I was going to say, because you, 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 you're in this role, president of a very large company. Most outside observers would say that that is the end goal. It's it would not a cushy job. You were working, you know, your ass off, but a great role nonetheless with great teammates. Why do you go and disrupt this wonderful life you've built to, as a founder and CEO, to start a totally new thing? What, why did you do that? Again, at the end of the day, I think that I'm of the belief that we are in this world to progress. We are in this world to add value in ways that values are not being added. And I saw this glaring hole, and, and it's what Evergen solves, but I saw this glaring hole where you have these remarkable family offices who have made their wealth in something that isn't real estate. They know and want meaningful exposure, real allocation into real estate. But at the end of the day, given the check size they are writing, they are not getting the economics they deserve. They are not getting the white glove service they, they deserve. They are not getting the control and the governance that they deserve. And I felt like there was a way to A, serve these families from an economic or financial standpoint, but B, I think that something that real estate is really special about, and you and I alluded to this earlier, is that it's tangible. And in my opinion, as you start to think about the duration of some of the investment mandates from some of these larger family office, they aren't thinking about the three or five year traditional private equity cycle. They are thinking about decades and generations. And real estate is one of these unique asset classes that you can make generational bets in. And so I felt like this was a way to go serve some of the country's greatest families who had worked really hard to build what they had, in many cases, over multiple generations. And we could help them be a good steward of their capital by way of their real estate allocation. And they're, they're, they're thinking generationally because they've created wealth over generations. And if, it, you know, I'm in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in the same industry where the typical, typical private equity model is IRR driven. We talked about this the other day, IRR driven. And so three, four, five years, as soon as the value is added or the value is realized or the value is you get to the value, it's like, hey, sell this immediately. Right, because that's PE is motivated, and that that's their business, and so you know, fair play to them. It's motivated by getting to the promote, getting to the carried interest, and while the deals, and we're we're talking about this right now, the deals you guys are looking at, they may have a longer horizon. So, go ahead. And and again, I think traditional private equity and traditional private equity real estate serve many folks really well, particularly non-taxable pensions, endowments, but also the individuals who have worked really hard and have the ability to, on a discretionary basis, invest in a syndicated deal. But there's just this small sliver of the population that are writing real sizable checks, 
but are taxable. And I'm not sure that the traditional private equity structure where majority of the operator's compensation comes from carried interest, which is tied to IRR, which is tied to time, best serves these families. And so what we really do is we are focused on tax efficiency. We are focused on redeployment risk. We are focused on the compounding. And 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 I think I may go on a, a quick tangent on go compounding it. because it was, it was a note I wrote earlier. So when as we we're speaking about it, compounding is this ability for your equity to compound, for your ability for your equity to really grow on top of itself. And it's an incredibly powerful tool if you have staying power. But, but where I might pull us off for a second is in our industry, we talk about compounding regularly. When we speak of compounding, we are talking about the compounding of dollars. I think that the concept of compounding is one of the greatest forces in our lives. And I think where I spend more time thinking about compounding is learning and your relationships. And so coming back to what are you doing coming out of school as a young professional or as you enter a new industry is the sooner you start learning, the sooner you can grow on that learning. And what happens is it compounds, right? So if you start learning something when you're 18 versus 22 or 22 versus 42, you are building that foundation earlier, which means you can learn more over over the period of time and there's exponential growth. And the same goes for relationships. You and I had a wonderful dinner last night, but I think it was inspired by a great dinner we had seven years ago. Yeah. But had we not had that dinner seven years ago, we wouldn't be doing this today. And the number of relationships, but more important than the quantity of relationships, the quality, quality. of relationships because of time, because of compounding of experiences together, and experiences aren't always good. You and I had some deep, dark, scary, tough talks when COVID broke out. Oh, yeah. We didn't know which way was up in our businesses. But you know what? We grew closer together. And if you don't think that I'm sitting here feeling more invested in and care more about your wife and four children and the success of Matthews because of what we've been through, you're kidding yourselves. And so I think that we can spend as much time as we want talking about the compounding of one's equity. But I think that you don't have to have any money to start the compounding of learning. You don't have to have any money to start the compounding of relationships. And in my mind, it is a very easy trade, which again, there are like these asymmetric returns where if you don't do it, you're just missing out. And if you do do it, there aren't many ways that you fall on your face. Yeah, the sooner you build that one relationship that then leads to two, the two relationships will lead to four, the four relationships will lead to eight. The sooner you start that relationship compounding, People talk all the time about networks, and, and it is incredibly important. But then the sooner you build a bigger network due to the compounding growth factor of relationships, not to mention the learning you had you had referenced. Let's let's talk COVID real quick. I I remember our conversations. We had we had a, a handful because we were we were both running companies. We were roughly the same age, and and it was a it was a it was a scary time. It was a scary time. How how was that for you guys? How did you how did you manage that in a leadership role? Talk to you can even reference the conversations we had. So it's people first. And COVID breaks out. It was unlike anything any of us not only had ever experienced, it was unlike anything any of us had really any exposure to or learnings around. And and one area where I failed those in my in my orbit were 
I hadn't spent enough time studying up on the 1918 Spanish flu that I really wasn't prepared. And I thought you were top of your class, though. <laughs> at the University of Texas, we didn't spend much time on that, at least not in, <laughs> fair, in, fair in the real estate program. But needless to say, priority one was how do you keep your team members safe? Priority two is how do you keep your tenants safe? Priority three was how do you keep your tenants in business? And priority four is how do you be a good member of the community? And very quickly, you had to mobilize getting team members out of the office because that's what we were told to do, mm -hmm. making sure team members and their families were safe, making sure everyone had the ability to work remotely, making sure your tenants felt comforted by their landlord that we were partners in what was going on. Again, we were pretty fortunate with much of our, many of our assets being in the states of Arizona, Texas, and New Mexico, which opened say, up yeah, more quickly. That, that definitely helped. We, we were fortunate in that the pain and the struggles as it related to being, as it related to forced closures were certainly not the encumbrances that they were and candidly still are in some markets where you still have eviction moratoriums. And here we are. Oh, yeah. We have offices you know, in those three years markets. later. It's, it's very, um, very frustrating. And, and we get, for a whole nother segment. There's still we a COVID emergency in Los Angeles. <laughs> that might have ended recently, yeah. but... Yeah, that's a that's a different a podcast, a, the, the one on politics. But uh, exactly, yeah, no, I remember, I remember. I'll tell you one of the facets that I tell everyone this conversation. Troy, we're sitting in, and this was this was I'm going to say roughly May, maybe June of 2021. I think it was June 2021 because we had our summer class. I came to Austin, and I was doing a training in town. And, and every time I'm in town, I'm more or less. I never give you advance notice. Say, hey, I'm in Austin. I'm here for eight hours. Let's grab a beer. And you, you're always so good to. Either meet up with me or I'll come over to your office. So thank you for that. I got to get better, yeah. more disciplined in <laughs> advance notice. We're sitting there and, you know, we're, we're just, we're bouncing the ball around and, and sharing ideas and, and, and strategies and plans in terms of running companies and leadership. And again, cause it's, it's 12 months after the pandemic hit, but it's still, it's still a thing. And I remember you, you kind of, you were talking to me about a process you were going through internally at Mimco about work from home and, and really having an open communication with your teammates about what do we want that to mean to us? Again, this is me. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm Troy. I said, hey, I value being in the office. I value, there is value, not just to me personally, more importantly, to our company and our investors and our tenants, to us being in the same place, but also at the same time, you know, perhaps some of the feedback from some of the teammates was like, hey, there's also value to me not coming in the office every day. And you kind of looked at me, and you were going through a process of like determining what would your formal policy be. And, and you, again, that was a huddle. It wasn't just you dictating. I remember that. But what stuck with me is you're like, hey, Kyle, like, you really want to know what I think? I think we've lost Fridays. I think we're Europe. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like this is it's like the four day. It's the it's the work in the office four days, Friday work from home. But you and I, we talk is like a Friday work from home what do you think? Two, three solid hours, maybe. Right. How I remember that conversation. I don't know if you remember it. How, how has that changed over the last couple of years? What are your thoughts about the work from home? Do you still share the, the opinion, perhaps not at Evergent, definitely not at Matthews, but that this country has, there is a fundamental change in the, the approach to work. There has been a fundamental change in the perspective of, of work and working hours and working days. And 
I believe the second part of my statement back in May or June of 21 was the United States has lost Fridays. The United States is becoming Europe. Yes. And guess who hasn't lost Fridays? And it is China and it is India. Yeah, you and, did say that. And at the end of the day, we operate in a globalized economy and an ever-increasing globalized economy. And at the end of the day, if you aren't progressing, if, if you are falling behind and your competitors aren't, we know how this ends. Mm -hmm. And so fast forwarding to today, it's April of 2023. You've now had the federal government come out and say five days a week in the office. You've now had the big banks like the Jamie Dimons who have taken very strong stances, which mm -hmm. I validate, which are if you're a managing director, and you're not coming in five days a week, why are those yeah. below you on the on org chart? We're even seeing tech companies. Exactly. Which which basically, you know, in order to work there, they they would tattoo work-life balance on your chest. <laughs> They're saying, you know, we pro you probably should come back in the office. Exactly. But it's coming at a time where Meta has lost 75% of its market cap. And so it, it took this drastic shift. What I will say is this. Today, April 2023, the average real estate company has a policy where four days a week you come to the office and work. I don't want to be average. We get to serve families whose technology you use, whose cars you drive, whose consumer product goods you consume, whose energy powers your lives, and they entrust us with the entirety of their real estate allocation. And when they do that, it's not because they're looking for an average real estate company. When we hire a broker to sell a property for us, what I'm not looking for is someone that says, if you call me on Friday afternoon, I'm probably going to text you from the golf course. What we are looking for is above average. We are looking for those that are going to work as hard, if not harder, than they did before COVID. They're, we're looking for people that are hyper-focused on delivering best-in-class service because that's what we owe to the families we serve. And that's what I owe to the average end team. And so at the end of the day, much like I'm not going to evangelize how I choose to lead my life, I'm not going to evangelize how Evergen chooses to use the office. But we are in the office on Monday mornings and Friday afternoon. And unless we're on the road getting to spend time with friends like you or on site with, with, with our properties, like we're at the desk. And that's because that's where I firmly believe not only can we best serve those that entrust us, but also that's where I think that we can build the culture. And that's where I think that we can not just educate and mentor, but really groom the next generation of leaders because you can't mentor over a modem. At the end of the day, a young team member isn't going to ask their mentor that small question over a Slack, and they're not going to set aside a five-minute time slot to ask that question in, on somebody's calendar. It happens in passing. And I think we as leaders owe it to our team members to create a platform where our team members can continually learn and continually grow. Yeah, we speak about mindsets and mentalities is there was a period of time and perhaps it is ending. And, and I think I agree that would be a good thing. But where it was, if not encouraged, accepted like, hey, you don't have to come in the office. You don't want to. And, and one of the fascinating things I, I witness in, in, in my role and I would assume for you, too, is it it almost it eliminated a lot of noise or shined a light on the professionals who had a mindset like you do or a mentality like you do where you, you know, you, you want to, 
you, you need to be successful. You're willing to put in the work. And when all of a sudden it got to this point where you, hey, you don't have to, then you saw the people who kept showing up, not because they were, they had to, not because everyone else was, because like, no, 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 I'm not here because I have to be. I'm here because I want to be, because I want to be great. I want to learn. I want to compound my, my learning. I want to compound my relationships. I need to be successful. So I get that I don't have to be here, but I want to be here. I insist on being here. And that, that, was, that was one of the, the cool things, the, the, the really valuable things that came out of that COVID era as it relates to running a company is you saw the people where when you, when you actually gave them a choice, like, hey, you don't have to be here because this is what we're being told, you know, for a very long period of time. I thought that was fascinating to see who was like, well, I know I don't have to be here, but I'm coming in. And I don't know if that was something you experienced while running Mimco. You're at Mimco, you're president, you, you know, it's, it's almost like an investment. It's like value add, stabilized, stabilizing, stabilize the company, stabilize investment. And you say, okay, wh what was it a moment? Was it one day you woke up, you had this aha moment? Was it just over time, a feeling that, uh, that developed within you said, I want to start something new. I'm, I'm going to found a company. Like, again, it gets back to that question. Like you had a wonderful, wonderful position and you said, nah, I'm going to do something different. And, and it was a wonderful position and a great firm. At the end of the day, we're constantly looking to add value, as you said. And Mimco had become this incredible battleship that was doing great things. And quite frankly, the incremental hour of my time was going to shape the trajectory of this business or add value to a lesser extent than it could in other ways. And again, I saw this glaring hole in this ability to go serve what we call our Evergen families and, and really to go serve best in class operators if we're doing deals with a partner or do deals directly. And, and you felt you couldn't do that at Mimco? You couldn't create a, a new division or a, a new platform? It was best done outside, most notably because at Mimco, there was already the existing investor nice. base. And if you're going to bring on new investors, why would they trust mm -hmm. that you're going to show them the best deals if you had others? And, and one area with Evergen is I love my family. We're actually going to a family wedding this weekend. I can't wait to spend time with them. And we're going to talk about everything but investor relations, which was not the case during the decade that I was at Mimco. And so as much as they've been incredible supporters of Evergen, no one from the Mimco world in will you, you know is investing in our, yeah. our thesis going forward. And I think it keeps it cleaner. I think it certainly eliminates any concern that I would ever cherry pick a deal for someone sure. that wasn't yeah. the Evergen family. You, you, you can always you can all you know we can always add more partners or more investors. We could always do, do something different in business, but you only have so much family, right? And if everything goes well, I, I talk about this a lot because this Matthew's not a family business. It's just me. Right. And, and people ask why I say, because if it goes really well, you know, let's my, let's just take my brothers and sisters. They're still just my brothers and sisters. Right. Mm -hmm. But if something doesn't go great, that, that could be an issue. And, and I potentially, I, I could jeopardize and possibly lose a relationship with a, a family member and it's just not worth it, you know? And, exactly. and so that, that, those are my words. If I, if I'm, if I'm hearing you correct. So walk us through, walk us through the, the launch of this company. How's it going? 
so here we are 20 months in. We were very fortunate, got off to the races. I'll tell you if there was a mistake I made. Sure. We made a lot of mistakes along the way. And in fact, if you look at the walls of my office, I frame all of our mistakes. I don't frame all of our wins because I want to I want to learn. You 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 put up frames? Oh, I put up frames. I put oh. up frames of newspaper clippings that that oh, you, you know, guys you, you got to send me a picture of this. Oh, absolutely. You know, one of my favorites is I remember early on, I mean it was the first few months of of Evergen. I go into a 1-hour meeting and I come out and I have like 3800 missed emails in the 1 hour. I'm not that popular. But sure enough, somebody had hacked into our system yeah. and I got signed up for, you know, the say, Russian bowling club yeah, email yeah. newsletter and yeah. you, you know, a few pharmaceuticals sure. or whatever. Yeah. And and I remember coming out and I was like, this is part of the journey. And it's just like, yeah, let's remember it. Yeah. I took a screenshot. I have it framed because there are times and, and, and we were very fortunate and got out to the races fast and we deployed hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars very quickly for best in class families. And, and I feel great about everything we did. And sometimes you need a, a reminder that like, we're still young, we're still hungry. You got to stay hungry. Nobody, nobody is better than anybody else. And at the end of the day, I think I think it's healthy for me to always see to see that there are ways to improve and to remember where you came from. I got one for you. Speaking of Russians, okay, they could be Ukrainians. I don't know. Is and if this has not happened to you, and if you're listening, this is if you have a business, get ready. So they go to the website. They go to Matthews.com. They go to Evergen.com, and so they and they scrape the roster. Mm -hmm. And you're on there. It says founder and CEO, just like I am. And so then a lot of your personnel, it will have their contacts, emails or cell phone. Mm -hmm. And if not, they can find it, you know, on the internet. And so at Matthews, it still happens to this day. It's just, it's so well known that it, they don't get us, but they'll text an employee. It says, you know, Hey, Susan, this is Kyle. I'm in a meeting I need you to do me a favor real quick. And this is a text they receive and it shows up as Kyle Matthews, the name. Now the number is not my number, of okay? Course. But it shows up as like, hey, it's Kyle. I'm in this really important meeting. I can't step out, but I need you to do me a favor. I'll explain later. I need you to go to CVS. I need you to buy a bunch of scratchers and just text me the the number. And so imagine you're, you're an employee. And, and again, this this becomes more effective the bigger or the organization. Because if, if you, you know, if, if, if like, when you got at Mimco, if there's 11 people, they'd be like, well, I'll just go down the office. I, I know what meetings he's in. If he's not, okay, let me, it's easier to figure out. But anyway, they started hitting our people and they, you know, they're like, well, if Kyle's asking me to do this, I want to do that. And they go down and they buy, you know, 300, 500, 700. One of our people got hit for $8,000. Oh my goodness. $8,000. So here I am. It's, it's a startup. It's a, I'm the founder. It's, it's my money. There's no, there's no outside investors. There's no you know, venture capitalists. And, you know, this is a couple of years in and, and my CFO comes to me and he's like, Hey, you know, so-and-so got, got scammed. And, and we had already, it had already started to circulate within the company. Like, Hey, this is happening. Don't, don't, don't listen. Don't believe this. It's not Kyle. All right. Mm -hmm. Well, $8,000. What, what am I gonna do? I'm gonna say, sorry, you know? And so it's just, it's an expense we had to take. So then one of the, I, I'm going to have to frame this, right? We we very aggressively in writing proactively messaged to our entire company like this is this is the scam, 
This is how it's going to look. Here's, by the way, here's 10 different examples we've saved. Please don't do this. <clears throat> and even then, it still happens occasionally, just not to that level. But, uh, but yeah, those Russians, man, they, they're nonstop. It's so true. It's so true. And, and that's part of the journey. Well, they, got a, they got a war to fund and, you know, like, so, <laughs> so, all right. What is your day? And then it, I'm going to touch on personal life in a second, but what is your, what is your day to day like now? And one, one point I'll hit on is, is one of the big mistakes I made in, in building out this business was I didn't appreciate how big the addressable market was as it related to families we could serve. And where that was great is, is we've never had a project that we couldn't capitalize. We have a lot of families that have, have really entrusted in us. But, but early on, we didn't build the team big enough for what we needed so to scale. do. So scale. And so at the end of the day, I'm really proud of the quote-unquote product that we delivered because it was white glove service at all times. But it meant a lot later nights, all the weekends, all team members, all hands on deck, all of the time. And, and so being where we are now and, and being at a business that is, is still young, but mature enough to know we're out of the woods, we're going to make You're it. You're going to survive. We, we, you know, we've done some great things. We're doing some great things. We could not have done that had the early team members of Evergen not have absolute buy-in. And when I say Evergen team members, it's really them and their families. Right, because when they were working late, because, that meant someone wasn't oh, coming home as early. When they were spending yeah. a weekend with us, that meant somebody wasn't at the park with the kids. When they were, and and so at the end of the day, I'm just so proud to be on this journey alongside our Evergen team members. And I give, I'm sitting here, but everybody on the team deserves to be in this room because they really leaned in. They've really been dedicated to serving our families. And at the end of the day, that's what gets me fired up. Every I, I know it's not public, so I'm not going to talk numbers, but I know you, you guys crushed on the fundraising and, and it's almost like maybe you underestimated the capability, right? And and then it, you you had this scale in terms of dry powder, but perhaps not the, pers not the number of personnel and the infrastructure needed. And, and that led to stress, right? Stress test, stress on, on everyone those first 12 months, but you guys, you guys made it through and no. you're proud of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then I'll tell you in the last seven months, we really haven't done a whole lot of new stuff. Well, right? you know, the there's not, a, yeah, unfortunately there's, there's not a ton to do here and there, but, uh, this is, you know, I, I say like you drive by enough farms out here in Tennessee and, and you know, it's a farm becomes like a metaphor for, for life, but for business is there's, there's a time of the year where nothing's growing, but you're planting, you're, you're tilling the dirt, you're, you know, fertilizing, you're getting the soil ready and you're planting seeds and, um, and it looks like nothing's happening, but in many ways, that's the most important time of the year. And, Absolutely. and right now when there, there aren't a lot of deals happening for, for an investment platform, like yours, a brokerage company, like Matthews is like this, this, I would argue is the most important. This is when the plant is that you're planting the seeds, you're tilling the store that you work in, you're working your farm area. And uh, so that when the sun comes back out, because it always does, it always does. You, we, we all grow like crazy. Exactly. What what advice would you have for someone looking to start a business? And it could be a company. I again, my experience was on a, on a brokerage side is is a broker is a is a business of one. But anyone who's ultimately choosing a life of entrepreneurship, where whether it's you call it eat what you kill or there's no ceiling but there's no floor. Um, what, what, what do they need to be prepared for? What, what, what guidance based on your experience would you have? Like what warning would you have for them? Like 
if what you've gone, you know, because again, Thackeray, you stepped into a, a fully built, well-oiled machine. Mimco, very much built. You came in and and to the best of your abilities, made improvements and 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 took that from there. But Evergen, I mean, it, it's you're the founder. It started from nothing. What advice would you have for anyone listening in who's starting a business or starting in a career where they're almost like their own business, typically a sales commission role? Don't do it if you don't believe in yourself. I think that the best Evergen team member that gets no credit is my wife, Leslie. At the end of the day, if you don't have buy-in from those that you live with, those that you are, you are you know, shoulder to shoulder in life with, you're never gonna succeed because it takes incredible sacrifice. It takes incredible shifting of priorities to make sure that this the seeds are getting planted, so to speak, in this business. And many times you've talked about your girlfriend turned wife and how much she supported you as you went out to start your own thing, as you've scaled this. And there are, as much as we'd like to pretend you leave the office and you forget about work and you're hyper-focused nah, on home, and then you leave, it's my work and my family blend together. And I've had such a supportive wife in this business we are building together. But if you don't have buy-in from those around you, and it might not be a spouse, it might be a best friend, a roommate, a family member, but at the end of the day, if those around you aren't supportive of your mission, you either need to reevaluate your mission or you need to reevaluate the people around you. And I think that another area that people do not spend enough time around about or focused on is the people that they surround themselves with. It is very easy to have bias based around those around you. And you made a comment earlier that you always want to be the dumbest one in the room or, and at the end of the day, at least motivated or at least motivated. And you know what? I love it. I I'm like I said, I'm at the office certainly before eight every day, most days at seven 30 and I'm never the first one there. And awesome. I love that. And that's none of that's been pushed on anybody on the team. And more often than not, I'm not the last one there either, but it's because I'm fortunate to be surrounded by team members that are as motivated, if not more motivated than I am. And so to that aspiring entrepreneur, who you surround yourself with is highly important. Your conviction in yourself is highly important. And then the biggest thing is just never give up. There are hard days, there are harder days, and then there are the hardest days. That's what that first year of a business is. Never quit. You cannot quit. And at the end of the day, when you fail, you get up, punch harder the next time, but at the, but, but ultimately if you're operating with high integrity, high character, working harder than the next individual, trying your best to work as smart as you can, and you are, you are marching toward a goal where value is being created, there's no path to you're not succeeding. You might succeed in ways that you didn't expect, but ultimately you will succeed but you only succeed if you get up after you fail. And if you think you're going to get there without failing, you're kidding yourself. We talk, you, I mean, you're, you're touching on success. What, what in your opinion, because you, you have, you have built relationships and, or had exposure to a lot of successful people across, across many industries. We were, we were having dinner last night and we were talking, it wasn't just real estate. It, what, 
has been your observation about a common mentality or common mindset, like a thread in the, the, the high achievers that you've met? Just one thing where you're like, you know what, everyone's different. Everyone's personality quirks are everyone's background and, and, and even the industry they're in could be different. But here's one thing that seems to be pretty consistent ac across all the, the, the highly successful high achievers that, that you've run into. And, and again, you and I are lucky to have great friends yes. in different industries, some more IQ, some more EQ. Some are, me, some are athletes with neither, but. Exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, no, at the end of the day, to me, time and time again, that common thread, it's grit, it's tenacity, it's jumping back up, it's not pushing the snooze button. It is people that are relentless and unwilling to fail and, if the, and, and unwilling to quit after failure is probably a better way. They fail, but they get back up. They all have dealt with hard times. They all have arguably dealt with more hard times than easy times. But it is this hyper mission-driven focus on getting better and getting better every day. And, you know, I love the word success because we should all aspire for it. But I hate this thought that success is the finish line and once you get there, you're done. I think that you can succeed every day before you hit said finish line. And I think that if you quit after you've made it across the finish line, you're a failure mm. because you spent so much time investing to hit some goal and, and, and then all of a sudden you, you throw the towel in. So to me, I think that you can be successful, again, by focusing on your inputs, not that output. Is, 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 is grit, mental toughness, is that, because we, 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 we touched on nature versus nurture, and I think we came to a place where there's agreement. It's both. Absolutely. What about someone who's like, hey, yes, I want to uh, be successful, but I want to achieve X, Y, Z goal. But I don't know if I would describe myself as having the grit, or I don't maybe have this experience to draw from earlier in my life where I had to overcome adversity. Is is grit, mental toughness? Is that something that they can train? Is that something they can develop? And and how how would they go about doing that? Absolutely. So, in my opinion, anybody can be successful, whether you grew up in the United States or an emerging country, whether you grew up with two loving parents or in a home that's different. In my opinion, at the end of the day, it comes back down to how are you behaving each and every day? It is consistency. It is not, I'm going to work really hard on my diet four days a week and cheat on three. It is not, I'm going to push snooze only three times a week and not seven. To me, it is day in and day out being consistent and, and day in, day out being disciplined. And anyone can focus on being disciplined. It certainly comes easier to some than others, but anyone can be disciplined. And quite frankly, I think to those that, it, that it's more difficult, they get a better cherry at the end. They get a better award because they know they overcame. Yeah, a, there's greater satisfaction, option, fulfillment, because right? they, knew, they knew it wasn't something that came easy to them. Exactly. And so... And it was, so, a, tr it was a true accomplishment. So to me... Many of those that have the greatest grit have come from what some might say was the most inferior of, of, an, of the environment, right, or background. But there are plenty that you and I both know that had no adversity, adversity, and they still have the grit. They still have that tenacity. They still have the ability to go get creative when things are tough. The, they still have that mentality that says, I see this obstacle and I'm taking it as a challenge and an opportunity 
and I'm not going to use this as my excuse. And to me, everyone gets to make that decision every day and to, to steal words from a man much smarter than me that's sitting across from me. They get to choose every morning if I'm going to push snooze, if I'm going to hop out of bed. But more than that, they get to choose what is my mentality when I get out of bed. And, and you know, I joke often that people say, oh, they woke up on the wrong side of the bed. Like, there's only one side of the bed. There's only one option. You don't have, give yourself the opportunity to snooze. You don't give yourself the opportunity to come out of bed in a, in a negative mindset because only you control that. But if you can sit there and lean in and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out of my way and try really hard and put forth effort to, to, to force upon myself this lens that is not going to say everything is pretty and easy, but it's overcomable. It is a challenge. It is not impossible. To me, that becomes that theme that I see time and time again from some of the most not successful, but most fulfilled people out there. And you start, yeah, and just 24 hours at a time. Absolutely. Uh, conversely, what is the most common characteristic mentality of the people who haven't achieved the success they want or they 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 failed and, and I don't know how to put this lightly is they're not where they want to be in life. To me it to me there is a very similar theme with many that arguably had better natural, you know, God-given talents that never caught their groove. Maybe were had a deck that was stacked in their favor. Never have found a place of fulfillment or success. And to me, people use money as a as a, a scorecard because it's quantifiable. So we'll use it in this example, but this is about fulfillment, sure. not about money. I wish the words get rich quick never existed, right? Get rich slow, get fulfilled slow. Like this idea of I'm going to start a company today. It's going to be a unicorn tomorrow. I'm going to be in the Forbes 100 next year, and I'm going to be the richest individual on earth in year three is silly. And it's not to say that it can't happen. It is not to say that it hasn't happened. But statistically, the odds are beyond improbable. So let's quit thinking about that. Let's go back to your example of, of the plantation. Let's make decisions day in and day out that are investments and and an area that societally I worry is, is there's this thought that many of our generation and those below, which is this like instant gratification yeah, the culture to me, if you're not willing to put in the work and make the investment and do the work when people aren't watching and do the work that isn't going to pay off for days or weeks or months, or maybe not years or decades, you're never going to get that fulfillment. And so to me, there are so many people we come across that, ha that have been given everything as it relates to talent or a platform to succeed, but aren't fulfilled. And every time it's because they wanna do the shortcut, they wanna get it quicker, mm. they don't, don't wanna put in as much work as their comp set, let alone more work. And so to me, it, that's like a glaring observation yeah. that I have high conviction in. Yeah, I, we see it in our industry is someone, oftentimes they're coming out of college and, and they do grind and they, they go hard and they, you know, they're doing 13, 14 hour days and they do it for like 12 months. And then they, we, we call it the valley of despair. They, they go down in the valley of despair and they never come out. And it's well, 12 months for them is like, you know, 20% of their adult life at this point. But it's, they're like, well, I've been doing this for 12 months. Why am I not rich? Where's all the business? And you're like, look, you've been grinding. That's great. But it is not a 
get rich quick business. It's not going to be a get rich quick company. It's going to be the unicorn. I love that line. Get rich slow. Zach, we're going to have to use that somewhere. Get rich slow. You already wrote it down? Yeah, dude, that was good. And maybe uh, it's get fulfilled slow. Maybe it's, you know, but but it's day in and day no, out. No, yeah, it's, it's uh, we talk about the, you know, the days are long and the years are short. And it's, it's not saying, hey, don't, don't go full speed. It's like, you have to, it's just, it's really managing expectations. It's like, Absolutely. if you come into starting a company or you're a company of one in, 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 in an entrepreneurial role and your expectations are, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to go hard for 24 months and then I'm going to have this big exit and then I'm going to have this big life. You, you are really setting yourself up, not just for failure, you're setting yourself up mentally and emotionally for a massive, massive punch to the gut. Absolutely. And a lot of people, they don't, they don't make it past it. They don't make it out of that, that moment, you know, cause I, I just say anybody can work hard for 12 months. Honestly, we see it here all the time. Let me, let me, let me pivot real quick. Cause I, I, I very much value your opinion. I, I touched on earlier, you, you are connected to so many major decision makers in so many different industries outside of just real estate. You're, you know, we were at dinner last year, you're talking about, you know, you were, you were, you were working with the, I think it was the Dallas Fed chair and, and just looking at data, where the economy is going. You're talking about a buddy of yours in Seattle who was running a really successful company. What, what, what's going on in the economy? Where do you see it going? I need you to, I need you to make some predictions and, and break out the crystal ball. Just what, what do you think's happening? Where do you see this heading? Let's talk about rates. Let's talk about, let's talk about it all. Any opinions here are solely my opinions. I'm going to trade on these opinions. And then if it doesn't work out, I'm going to blame you. Absolutely. Okay. As you should blame me for anything, even if we didn't talk about it. I do. This right, is actually, it's, it's served me well. I, <laughs> I generally say, well, you know, Troy screwed it up. So it, Exactly. I apologize for yesterday, yesterday's cloudy weather. No. So I think that we were in a really unique time. Many people say, is this the opportunity of a lifetime to invest? I think this could be a really interesting opportunity to invest. I don't think it's the opportunity of a lifetime. I think it's the opportunity of a cycle, right? And we live in a cyclical economy. <laughs> this is a cyclical industry. This just feels like a time where we are closer to the trough than we were to the peak. And assuming that you capitalize things conservatively, you should be able to, and you make the right decisions with the right basis, you should be able to one day be holding on to something that is more valuable than it is today. And probably what I foresee will be pretty choppy waters ahead. Love them or hate them, the Fed Chair Jerome Powell has done an exceptional job, in my opinion, of walking us through his decision making and candidly giving us the cheat sheet to the test on what their plans are. So next week, the Fed's going to meet. I don't know anything you don't know, but if he continues to do what he's done, which is tell us what he's going to do, there's going to be a rate hike next week and people shouldn't be surprised by it. He is absolutely messaged to us that they want to see unemployment move up to 4%. They've said that for a year, for better or worse, I don't think anyone fully appreciated what printing trillions and trillions of dollars would do. Yeah. And so unemployment continues to hover at three and a half percent. Who would have guessed, right? <laughs> and so well, a lot of the retail properties have benefited. We, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, everybody has been, you everyone. and I were at dinner last night. Everyone. Every table was full. Everybody was ordering wine. I mean, yeah. there is 
what we know is that's we also have to, that's also Nash Vegas, baby. That's true. That's and we will spend a few minutes talking about markets because I do think there's a tale of two cities playing out in this country and across the globe. Talk about Chicago. We can definitely talk about cities that continue to be their worst enemy. But at the end of the day, I think that the focus is on inflation. Inflation isn't near the two percent target. They know to, they need to hit employment or said differently, increase unemployment or have more people without a job. So to do that, they will continue to raise rates. House view is, the market view is that there's going to be a, a rate hike in May. And then if you start bits, to look yeah. at forward yield curves, people start to think rates actually start to come down in the back half of the year. My opinion is that's silly. I think that we should expect a certain rate hike in May. I our internal models, everything we're underwriting, has at least two additional quarter point rate, hi- rate hikes. And that takes us to 550 it, to 575? Exactly. Okay. And at the end of the day, I think that this is what needs to happen to get inflation to an area where it's not going to, quite frankly, drown out the poor. And we are living in a society where there is a tale of two cities or two worlds, and we need to find a way to take care of all Americans. And Sky-high inflation does not do that. And so I think that the Fed said they're going to break some things. Six weeks ago, a couple banks broke. We've got more to go. I thought they did a good job coming out and and calming things down. They did. They did because at the end of the day, the banking industry is built on confidence and trust. And there were 72 hours where people did not have confidence and trust. And so their backstopping SVB was important and signature was important. I think that Systemically, we have to figure it out. The FDIC cannot insure all banks, certainly not banks much bigger than SVB. And so we've got to figure out a way to instill trust in the system while not having the government fully backstop any bank that's making bad decisions. Uh, there's a moral hazard there over time. Absolutely. They're like, well, if no one's going to lose anything, then let's take more risk. Everyone should take the same you know, duration yeah. risk that SVB did. So then, so so point being, I think in the short to medium term, there's going to be more pain, more volatility. I think that we would call that headwinds. I think that you can then make, and, and those are headwinds in the macro economy, and you layer on geopolitical risk, i.e. China and tensions in and around Taiwan. I think that we can talk about Russia and Ukraine. I think that we can talk about like incredible poverty in Africa. But I think that there are some markets that are experienced what I call crosswinds, right? So there are some level of tailwinds. You alluded to Nashville or Nash Vegas, as you said. I still think the United States is the greatest country in the world. I still think if you look at capital flows across the globe, you still see more in-migration of Mm -hmm. international capital in the United States because arguably the U.S. is safer relative to our comp set than it's ever been because the U.K. post-Brexit or Hong Kong post China taking it over. Sure. I mean, you, you start to run the paths. And so the U.S. still feels pretty good. I think that there are themes that are pretty exciting right now. Clearly, themes like onshoring and nearshoring are very real. So I think that there's going to be some really neat opportunities in real estate, but outside of real estate, as it relates to advanced manufacturing, I think that life sciences is just getting started. It are really kind of at the, at the precipice of something that could be really special. But I think that an area that we all need to be really mindful of in the real estate industry 
is not all assets are created equally. And that doesn't just mean one property is on a hard corner versus mid block. I think that there are some real policy decisions being made at the local and state levels of certain mm-hmm. cities and counties and states that will lead to greater winners and losers. You alluded to Chicago. That yeah, well, we were talking last night at, at dinner about Chicago and, and for the audience, we were talking about how much we love the city of Chicago. It's one of my favorite cities to visit, especially between the months of May and October. In fact, I'm going to head up this October to check out the SC Notre Dame game. So I'm excited for that. But we were just talking about a recent election that took place in mayor. The voters came out and voted. Chicago has a population below what it was in 1980. You've seen many of them on the streets of Nashville, right? People that lived in Chicago loved Chicago, but they were forced out. And at the end of the day... And they doubled down on this. They doubled down on this. And they've, they doubled down on taxing employers more. They doubled down on less support for first responders. They doubled down. And, and at the end of the day, the voters are really starting to vote with their feet. And you look at, we spend a ton of time focused on data. You look at U-Haul data. How many people are moving out of Chicago? How many people are moving in? Here, here's the answer to the test. Nobody's moving in. But it's not just Chicago. It's San Francisco's very, San Francisco. very concerning right now. And what a special city. Well, it's we, geographically, we, I mean, the we, weather, I grew the up, technology. I spent a lot of time as a kid in Southern California and going up to the Bay. And it's such a gorgeous city. But we would go up at, at SC. It was called The Weekender. And yeah, I couldn't go up when I was playing. But after, you know, a couple of years after. And it was, it was so cool. I love that city. Whoa. It was so much fun. And and it's got it's got issues. Of course, I mean, I live in Austin. You live in Nashville. Both markets that are in vogue right now. But for you and I to go to the mountains, the beach, or the wine country, we have to get on an airplane. If you live in San Francisco, you're an hour away from all yeah. of that. I mean, it's you know the mansion tax in L.A. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, so I think that moratorium eviction. Moratorium the man, the mansion tax. That's great because like you know we're selling an eight unit apartment building for an owner that's owned it for fifty years. It's their only investment. By no means are they. You know the the land the the caricature of the land greedy land baron, and now now they're paying this crazy tax, and it's called a mansion tax. And this is you know we're selling an eight unit apartment building. Of course, and they might have bought it for seven million and selling it for a loss at six million, and they're still paying. The it tax. doesn't matter. So I think that we need to be really thoughtful right now in in periods of turmoil in the markets we're picking, the submarkets we're picking, the intersections we're picking, mm. the tenants we're picking, because there will be winners and winners losers. Winners and losers. But at the end of the day, I think in it, something that you and I share is both of our teams are hyper-focused on data, and we really spend a lot of time thinking about trends. And this isn't rocket science, and at the end of the day, we are absolutely able to make – decisions where our downside is protected if you focus on capitalizing conservatively. This is going to be, this is your opinion, but I'm going to ask is the economy being a clock, right? And the, the economic cycle, because sure. you said earlier, and I agree, we, we are in a cyclical economy, 12 being the bottom. Okay. Okay. That, where are we on the clock? Are we at, I'm just leading. Are we yep. at 11 where we still have a little bit, you know, we're fallen, but like we still have a little bit more to go. Are we at one where we actually have already bottomed and we're just, it's already starting to get better? What, what are you? Certainly. I, I don't think we've bottomed. I okay. think that, and if you look at public equities, whether it's real estate and REITs or just the general public markets, 
generally speaking, credit markets lead, public markets follow, and then the private markets where you and I spend majority of our time, though Matthews does a great job serving some of the big public reads. The credit markets have certainly swung. Public markets have certainly been beat up. I don't think beat up badly enough. I still think the market is pricing in this Goldilocks scenario with the super soft landing. And and I just don't see it. I, and, and more than anything, I think that the odds of of being wrong on that bet are just so much higher than, than the likelihood that that could be right. The private markets are starting to follow. But I think that values, especially in real estate, have not seen the trough. That's not to say there aren't one-off opportunities to buy something at a value that you can feel really good about. And it might be at its lowest point because there is a motivation unrelated to the macro economy, i.e. a seller's loans coming due or their interest rate cap is burnt off or they have pressure from investors to, or, or lenders to sell. So it's not to say people cannot transact right now, but I don't think that we are at the trough yet. I would assume it happens in the next year. It could be in the next month. It could be in, in 12 months. Well, we're but, not there. So we're not we're at not 12. There. Six is the peak. Are we nine, 10, 11? I th- I'm hopeful we're at 11. Yeah. I'm hopeful we're at 11. But, but the clock hand moves at the exact same pace every minute in, of the day. I think that we will see some real drastic shifts that almost mean those minutes move faster or slower over the course of, of the time between. All right, let me, let, me, let me bring this home, all right? I wrote down this the question I want to ask you is like when you hang up your cleats, like hypothetically when you hang up the cleats one day, okay, and I know you're never going to stop, all right? But I, when you are physically no longer capable to go at the, the pace you have, so when your playing days are done, when, you're, when your professional career is more or less in its, in its twilight, how would you want someone to describe your mentality? Where if someone's saying, hey, what was, what was Troy like? like? And they said, this was his mindset. This was his mentality. What do you want someone to say about you? No, it's a profound question. At the end of the day, an, another mentor actually took four company, real estate companies public, and, and he passed away during COVID, unfortunately. But he once said, Troy, you've got to leave the wood pile with more wood than when you showed up, right? And, and to me, I think about that is I care a ton about how I make people feel. And, and that doesn't mean I always need to leave them laughing, or it doesn't mean I always need to leave them smiling. That means I want when I leave them for them to be inspired or for them to be one step closer to whatever their goal is, right? And again, that could be all work, it could be all play, it could be all sleep, it could be, you know, all family or friends or hobbies or what have you. But so to me, it's how do we inspire people to be their best selves? How do we inspire people to constantly want to progress and constantly want to get better and constantly compete against the person they were the day before? And so to me, I think that that is that is what I want to leave behind. It's how did you impact others on this journey? Some people say it's about the end result. Some people say it's about the journey that got you to that end result. To me, I, I like both of those stories, but the story I live is it's not about the end result. It's not about the journey that you're on. It's actually about the people you're with on that journey. And to me, I love people and I always want to leave people in a better place than they were beforehand. And so that's a real focus of mine. And I think that's why, as I think about how I spend time, whether it is 
mentoring up and coming leaders or it's collaborating with peers like you or it's serving those that came before at the end of the day I, I think there's just a part of my heart that is about serving and I was on a in a conversation like this a month or so ago and they had asked me if you weren't in real estate what would you do it'd be like I want to be a teacher like I want to I want to teach and maybe it's in a formal academic capacity or maybe it's not but it's how do we leave the people in our lives and the people in the communities in which we love in a better place? Well, you very much in the role you're at, you are a teacher or you can be. I mean, I teach what not to do. The, 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 well, you have, <laughs> I meant, yeah, you have a wall with a bunch of mistakes. I mean, clearly you, you're not good at your job. Exactly. No. Well, I'm uh, definitely a learner. <laughs> that's right. I mean, we all, we, we have to be. No, I mean, you, you teach people every day. You teach me. I've learned a lot from you. And I look forward to continuing to learn from you, Troy. I can't thank you enough for coming out to Nash Vegas and spending some time. I had a lovely dinner, and I look forward to seeing you in Austin sometime soon. But again, thanks for coming out. This, this was great. I really enjoyed this. No, thank you for the time. Thank oh, you for the friendship and partnership. You too.